Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. We've missed you. We've been on spring break. It's good to be back. Bible commentator W.G. Blakey notes that after the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, Henry V of England ordered the singing of Psalm 115 for, for all of his men after the battle. He prostrated himself. He, the king, prostrated himself on the ground and he caused his whole army to do the same, while the, these words from Psalm 115, the opening, peeled forth. Not unto us, O Lord, non nobis domine. What a great, if you haven't listened to that song, you should listen to it. You'll probably want to download it immediately and buy it. Um, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. And this is really as well as the song that we just sang right before the passing of the peace, which is so well chosen by Justin and Paul. Um, this is really the tenor of David's song here. And it's the capstone of the book that we've been studying, First and Second Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, it's one book, the book of Samuel. It's the capstone of this book. It's a song of praise, non nobis domine, not to us, Lord, not to me, Lord. All this reign that you've given me, all these promises that my reign will never end, not to me, not to me, but to your name. Um, this is the banner over his life, and rather than singing of his exploits, of which there are many, um, he sings of the salvation and the greatness of God, and how thy gentleness, O Lord, has made me great. And that's actually a song that Robin and I sing over our kids, your gentleness, and it's the best when you hear Susu sing, and I love, Susu's my three-year-old, for those of you who don't know us. Um, so it's good, I say that in part because it's a proper thing to say as we jump into this text, but also as we finish um, really the life in large part of David and of, and of uh, this, this whole book and this series, but also to remember as I walk through this for the next 25, 30 minutes, that um, this whole song is a song of praise, but not of, it's not, of con- not one of concealed boasting. It sounds like concealed boasting a bit, and there's a passage in the middle, verses 20 through 31, that are, that are tough, and we're going to hit those in a bit here. Um, so, the, so this is the end of Samuel. The beginning of Samuel basically starts with, another, with a song. So this book starts with a song and it ends with a song. It starts with a song of Hannah. And the song of Hannah is essentially, to boil it down, Hannah saying, looking forward to God's reign and saying, this is what it's gonna be like. You're gonna bring um, those that are high, low, and you're gonna raise up those that are low. And, um, and David is saying, He's saying, God, at the end of this book, he's saying, God, look at what you have begun to do. This is what your reign has begun to look like through me, and it will be perfected through one who you said is gonna come from me. And we know that that's that's Jesus. Um, So let's start with the king's praise. It just comes straight out like a machine gun out of this, uh, out of David's pen. And again, it was very much like the song we just sang. Um, where we're just exploding in praise to God for what he's done. And his praise is explosive. Uh, one commentator says, he doesn't, David doesn't begin this song with praise. He explodes in praise. He piles up words. It's like he's sputtering to try to keep up with his heart. It's inexplicable how much he thinks of God and how much God has done for him. And that's kind of the sense that you're supposed to get in this poetry. De- uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, he says, David's staccato machine gun exuberance arises from his utter inability to stretch his praise to match God's splendor. He's trying to overcome his, quote, I love this phrase, his delicious frustration 
of adequately lauding Yahweh. And you, you can kind of sense that in Justin whenever he leads in worship. He's just like crying. That's delicious frustration. It's, an, it's, a, it's a deliciously frustrating inability to express how much we love and laud our God. We have no words. The, only, the best word we can think of is Jesus. God saves. So this is David here, and his praise is explosive, but it's also personal. It's also personal. Um, he uses the word, the first person uh, possessive pronoun, my. Um, it's at least, it occurs 10 times at least in the first six verses. My fortress, my rock, my deliverer, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, and on and on. That's how he comes out of the gate like a racehorse. Um, so let me just pause here and say a few things about this, just a words of sort of application. God is a refuge and a stronghold and savior and the only savior and God, whether or not you believe it. Thank God people's unbelief, our unbelief doesn't change who God is. He is the bedrock of all being. He is the I am from which all other ours extend. But to, unless he is your savior and your rock and your God, it will not make a difference to you. And in fact, it'll make a very big difference, but not in your favor, but not in your favor. And that's part of what this song is about. It's, it's a hard part, but God must be your God. Let David be your instructor and my instructor here. God is God, but he must be for us to take advantage of all that he is, all of his love and power and goodness. He must be our God, our refuge, our savior. And David shows us the way to that um, this morning. Satan, this is something Satan's never gonna say. Uh, Satan knows that God is God. In a lot of ways, he believes more than we do because he's battled with God. He's not God's equal on the battlefield, not at all. He's a, he's a created now worm and he will be destroyed one day by God and he's already been defeated at the cross. But Satan believes that God is God. James says, do you, do you believe in God? Good, so, does the, so the demons, well done, congrats. And they tremble. But Satan will never say, God, you are my God, like David does here. That one little personal pronoun makes all, can make the difference between heaven and hell for you and for me. It will, to your God. I just wanna ask you that this morning. Put that on your heart and mind. God, are you my God? If not, I want you to keep your ears and your heart open. God, open up our ears and our hearts. Um, Satan will never bow the knee to surrender. He was there at the cross, but he will never surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, you died. Not just you died. Satan knows Jesus died. He was there cheering, but you died for me. You believe that. You believe that. I pray that you would. Um, and I pray that if you're a Christian, this isn't just for, this isn't just an address to non-Christians, what I just said there. That's to the Christian to believe to continue as we continue a life of continual repentance, to believe more and more deeply into the simple yet profound gospel of Jesus Christ. We never graduate from it. It's not the A to A, B, and C of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z, to steal a phrase from Keller who got it from somebody else. Everything's, everything's recycled, okay? Nothing's original, thank God. Um, but to, to live more and more into that fact. Jesus, you are my king. I surrender to you. You are my God. Be my God more and more. Um, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
even in this moment of anguish when he literally, those are the words of David from another Psalm. He felt like God had forsaken him, God had not, but actually Jesus' words, as with this Psalm, so much of what David says isn't fully fulfilled by David, but it's fully fulfilled in Christ. So with those words, God truly forsook his son on the cross. And yet Jesus said, you are still my God. And because he stuck it in the midst of hell, we receive all the benefits of the fact that he was the true son of God and he remained faithful to God. When we are faithless, God is faithful. So our only entrance to relationship with God is through this man, this God man, Jesus Christ, and we'll get there. Um, so if you're thinking, okay, there's, there has to be something profound producing this explosion of praise, you'd be right. There is something profound producing this explosion of praise. So moving on um, from the king's praise to the king's salvation. So these opening verses show a man in deep distress. The metaphors in the first few verses hint at this. So God is his rock. Um, God is his rock. In the midst of instability, flood, and fire, I think of when, with God as a rock and sort of saving us as a rock, I think of Lord of the Rings. I go there like every other sermon. Just finished um, the bit where Mordor, the, sorry, spoiler alert, the, uh, hey, uh, Mount Doom in Mordor explodes. It's like a volcano and, and uh, lava's streaming around and Sam and Frodo are saved by being on the rock. And even there, they're imperiled, but lava's flowing all around them and yet there they sit like two little specks for the eagles to find. Spoiler alert again. Um, but God is our rock. In the midst of flood, fire, instability, all the instabilities and threats of life, he's our rock. He was David's rock. He's a fortress. That's a war metaphor. I mean, you're being assailed. You're being attacked in life. Whatever it is, David was literally being hunted down for his life for over a decade. God is my fortress. I run into him and I'm safe. So he's, he's imperiled. He's my deliverer. You're being attacked. And on and on it goes. So these first few verses hint at it. Verses five through seven unpack what's implied. They unfurl the flag, as it were. Um, and again, this describes this state. Um, and it'd probably be worth just reading a few of those verses, starting in verse five. For the ways of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, and on and on he goes. This is not hyperbole. David is, he is under threat of being killed constantly. Um, and so he says in sort of condense it in a prose form, he says it in 1 Samuel 20 to his best friend, Jonathan, there is but one step between me and death, one step. You know, so this is David's life for years because Saul is pursuing him to kill him. Um, one commentator says, his distress went far beyond facing gallbladder surgery. If you've had gallbladder surgery, not minimizing that. But it's far beyond that, right? Or replacing a defunct automatic transmission. Death daily dogged his tracks. He was Saul's most wanted man. But Yahweh had delivered him, and he who is forgiven much. One of my favorite utterances in the whole of scripture out of Jesus' mouth. He who is forgiven much, what? Loves much. Luke 7. Said about the prostitute. Jesus said, go. Your sins are forgiven. Because he who is forgiven much loves much. And David, he has been rescued out of peril time and time again. And at the end of his life, he stands here and he just says, 
God, all praise be to you. Um, so this is, this is the reason for the explosion. You know, as I talk about this, he was forgiven much loves months. I think about David, who knew not only that he'd been delivered from physical death experiences, but man, he knew what a sinner he was. Doesn't come through as strongly in this song, which we'll talk about, but man, he, go read Psalm 51. Man knew he was a sinner. I think about a friend of ours who, um, she knows what a sinkhole she'd made of her life. She was literally, I, I looked at her once and it was like I was looking at someone standing on the edge of hell, of the abyss. One step forward and she would have been in. Because that's, you know, that's the way sin works, right? It's like, you can't just think, oh, tomorrow I'll repent, tomorrow I'll repent, next day. No, like today, today may be the last day on earth and sin is never satisfied and it will consume you and destroy you. And so you're never safe from it until you're safe in Jesus. And just watching her sit there and she, God grabbed her from the edge of the abyss and she is walking with him today and she knows it's not her. She knows what a filthy mess she'd made of her life and it's all praise to God for where she is. And you know what? That's, if we're in Christ, that's our story, but she believes it. So she prays different and she praises differently. And so will we when this sinks deeper. And that's what David got. Let me offer a couple bits of application here um, before transitioning to the, the third point. So life is hard. That's one thing we get from this, right? This is, this, is about, this is David talking about his life. He is the anointed of God, okay? But life is hard. It's full of suffering. All this is praise to God because of all these situations God had restored him, brought him from, the jaws of death time and time again. The Christian's not exempt from suffering. David was God's man through whom he would bless the world. You would think if anyone was exempt from suffering, it'd be that cat. Not a chance. His life got harder, on the contrary, way harder, once God came and said, Dink, you're my man. Duck, duck, goose, you're it. I'm gonna put my spirit on you. I'm gonna bless the world through you. That's when David's life got real hard. When Mary was visited by the Lord and he said, I'm gonna do something to you that will distinguish you from all the people of the earth. He will honor you in a way no one has been honored before or will be since, or moving forward. That's, in that day, it was like a sword piercing her own soul, bearing God Almighty in her womb, delivering him and then seeing him live a life of rejection and then suffering on the cross, her life got much, much harder. Man, when you, if you hear someone preaching the gospel that says, hey, preach, come to Christ and everything will get rosy for you, let me just give you a piece of advice. Don't walk away. Run. Run away. Will your life get better? Will it get richer? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the only life? Yes. Yes. But if he wasn't spared the cross, if he wasn't spared suffering, and more, he told us, in the world you will have trouble. But I give you my peace. I am your peace. And where I am, there you will also be. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us now. We're not exempt from suffering, and it's not going to last forever. That's what David finishes with, which is why we chose to finish this very long passage, right? You're like, we're going into another chapter here? Chapter 23, you know? I know you. I was thinking the same thing. Because that's what David ends with. It's not gonna last forever. The sun is gonna rise. The reign of the king is gonna come. It's come already in Christ, but it's gonna come in fullness when he returns, and we are in the, in the shadowlands, in the in-between space between the already and the not yet. 
And when he comes again, the sun is gonna rise in its fullness and the grass is gonna come out all the greener and all boats are gonna rise and evil will be done away with. And we're gonna get there in a second. I don't wanna get too far ahead, okay? So that's the first bit of application. Life is hard, we're not exempt, but he's with us and it's not, it's not, it's not the final say. He's gonna do away with sin and suffering and Satan, okay? Uh, secondly though, note what he doesn't say when he's running for his life. Um, he doesn't say, God has forgotten about me. Or worse, God must not exist because I'm, I'm, I'm suffering so badly right now. He does not say that. Rather, he says, he cries out to God and God comes to his rescue. He has all confidence in the living God. In the midst of his suffering, he clings more closely to God. And God upholds him. And was David's faith perfect? Of course not. Of course not. David was far from perfect. We have that just splashed over the pages of holy writ for us to see, to point us to the greater David, don't we? And we'll get, we'll get there too. Um, <laughs> so, um, God's response to David, the king's salvation, point two, let's really get into it and then move on to point three, the king's self-righteousness, the hardest point. God's response to David begins kind of in verse eight, in earnest, and it goes through verse 16 or so. And it's just like this furious dragon bull god just snorting at the nostrils, fire coming out, get out of his way. It's a real Mount Sinai god coming down and blackening everything. He's shrouded, he's riding the clouds. The heavens are like creaking under the weight of his power. And he's, you better get out of his way. And if you're not on David's side, you better watch out because you're toast. This is the Taylor paraphrase of, of what David is showing God to be like in his response. We've, had, we've heard phrases like, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. This is true. Or uh, like a she-bear robbed of her cubs. I think the former is not in the Bible. To say, I think the latter is. Like a she-bear robbed of her cubs. I mean, don't, don't take a cub away. Don't be playing with a cub or take a cub away from its, from its mom. She's gonna come after you and claw you up. Um, where do women, where do she-bears, where do mother bears get this kind of, these kind of impulses? From God, who made them. He is full of passionate intensity for his own. And the, what we're seeing here is the response of a father whose son is in trouble. Help, Dad! God, you better watch out. He's coming. He's coming for his own. We were on spring break this past week, like I said, and I, um, I saw... Wait, <laughs> on the latter part of our trip, we were with dear friends the whole time. And but, um, one of my, my friend's son, he was, uh, our, our kids were in the lawn um, playing around and beating each other and jumping on the trampoline and stuff. And his son t- started taking a stick to my son. And he's taking, he's taking jujitsu. And so he had, him, he had him sort of in a chokehold and stuff. was like tapping. He's like, I'm joking, literally, I'm suffocating. And, uh, you know, when I see that, do you think I'm, you know, you want to let him tussle, but you also don't want your son to die. And uh, there's, fair, there's fair fighting. So we put down the ground rules, like, you may wrestle, no biting, scratching, clawing. You know, it was like, and go. You know, it was sort of like an ultimate fighting championship. But, man, you better believe I'm going to react when I see my son getting wailed on unfairly. Um, and that's just a tiny broken picture of the way that God is. That's God times, God's that times a zillion. This is the language of a father rescuing his son. Um, verse 16, we probably have a, a, a reference to the Red Sea. You know, I, we walk through on dry land. God, I walk through on dry land, and David is representing his people here, um, the Exodus reference. And that's, the Exodus is a picture of God rescuing his son 
Exodus 4, Hosea 11. Israel, God's people, is called his own son. And that we are in Christ. That we are. Um, one commentator describes, forget everything I said and just listen to this. It's a great description. One commentator describes God's reaction to David's cry in these verses for help as, quote, the world coming unglued. And David does a show and tell here because he wants to not just say, God save me. But it's poetry, right? It's what poetry does. It shows you, it shows you the way that God feels when his own are threatened and attacked. He will finish He will finish those who are opposing his children. But here, sometimes it seems like that's never gonna happen. But this is not the final. This is not the end. It's a great hope for us. Great hope for us. So thirdly, the king's self-righteousness. The king's, after after looking at um, the king's salvation, the king's praise and his salvation, let's look at the king's self-righteousness. Um, these verses, 20 through 28, are the center of, of this song. They're also the big, they're all, also the most problematic, okay? It'd be nice to skip these verses. I thought about it. But God's word, all of it, is, is good and necessary for faith and life. You preach a little bit of it, you're gonna get a little bit of God. You gotta preach the full countenance of God because it's all his very breath. It's all here for a reason. There's lots that's been left out. Letters of Paul got lost. The ones that we have here, God wants us to know him by. So let's look at them. Um, Verse 21, we'll kind of stand aptly or well for all of them. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Nathaniel actually, I don't know, it was interesting in his reading, I don't know if you caught that, but he he mixed up the personal pronoun. It was probably a sort of a, a Freudian slip. He said, the Lord dealt with me according to his righteousness. Because <laughs> that's what our theology wants us to say. It's like, no, David, he didn't deal with you according to your righteousness. You would have gotten the hammer if he'd done that. But no, no. David says almost egregiously over and over again, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of, of my hands, he rewarded me. So I'm gonna say just a few things in sort of machine gun fashion here, Okay. This is not a commentary that fully and exhaustively deals with it, but let me just help us be helped by this rather than just sidestepping it, okay? One word, Bathsheba. This is two problems. The first one is Bathsheba, okay? Like I've been hinting at, David's hands were not clean. If you weren't here before and, or you haven't read through Samuel, it's okay because in Samuel, a few chapters before, for all to see, it's not hidden and it's actually strewn throughout some of the rest of the pages of scripture, including in Jesus's genealogy. Where'd Jesus come from? from this sin affair. David, King David, um, stole one of his good friends and bodyguard's wife, he already had multiple wives, and slept with her and raped her as Jordan, as, Jordan, as Justin preached, he, he probably, uh, you know, he, you, can't, you can't say no to the king in the ancient Near East, sorry. So, so against her will, um, slept with her and then had her husband killed in battle along with the others that were on the front line from which the army withdrew. So David's hands aren't, uh, aren't clean. But even if uh, this were, ch- um, excuse me. So I- I'm not quite sure what I put here, but um, let, me, let me interpret for myself here. Um, I think that, ah, I skipped something. So um, one of the solutions could be, um, okay, so even if, David, here's what I'm saying, sorry. Um, Sometimes you just can't understand what you're trying to say yourself. Uh, Even if David had not done that, 
even if his hands were clean, okay, he seems to be ascribing to a works-based righteousness. So that's another problem. Bathsheba's the first. He's not clean. But even if he were clean, he seems to be setting up sort of a, I've lived this way, therefore you're rewarding me. Um, one commentator says, is David in verses 21 through 25 dragging uh, in a Santa Claus theology of, wor- of works righteousness. Jack Deere, he's been one of the most influential teachers in my life, and he, he just came out with a new book called um, Even in Our Darkness, which is poignant as grief. Um, when he was a young boy, um, Jack heard his dad uh, pray a rare prayer of sincerity at the hospital with Jack's mom. And Jack says this, he says, the residue of that experience still clung to me when we left the hospital. At home, I asked dad what I had to do to get into heaven. He told me that when I died, I would arrive at the gates of heaven and stand before St. Peter. He would take out two books and a set of scales. The first book contained my good deeds, the other my bad ones. St. Peter would place the good deeds on one side of the scale and the bad deeds on the other. If good deeds, if good deeds go down, you go up, he said. The bad deeds go down, so do you. My heart sank. This is an 11-year-old boy hearing this from his dad. And this seems to be kind of what David's saying here, um, if we're honest. Okay, so let me offer some thoughts. Again, machine gun fashion. Let me offer some thoughts. Those are a couple problems. Let me offer some thoughts. One, this seems to be, this is what I thought I had said prematurely. This seems to have been written by David before the Bathsheba incident. Okay, I'm going, I'm moving from weakest argument to strongest, so hang with me. This seems to have been written by David, this song of praise, before, way before the Bathsheba incident. Um, what do I mean by that? If you look at verse one of chapter 22, it says that he wrote this after being saved by God's hand from Saul. So this is probably right after he became, basically right after Saul was killed in First uh, Samuel 28, and then he was anointed king. So somewhere around that time. Um, but this doesn't really solve the problem because it just pushes it back. Um, it just pushes it back um, because we still have the incident of David Bathsheba here in the scriptures. And actually this song is placed as the capstone, though it was written earlier by David, it's placed as the cap- at the capstone of this book. Sort of as if to say, this is kind of what this whole book's about about King David and God choosing him and what he did through David and how he's gonna continue to work and reign through David. Um, And so it speaks for the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing, all of David's life, Um, including the Bathsheba bit. And even were that not true, um, it would, again, seem to leave us with a David who thinks that he can stand before God on his own two feet, on his own steam. That's not, in fact, what David's saying here or what he ever said. Um, Thirdly, this kind of, presses out the walls of my theology a bit, and it's, that's part of why we go back to the scriptures time and time again. We don't worship our theology, God forbid. We worship, we worship God revealed perfectly through his word, and we often think that our interpretation of his word is perfect. It's never the case. So we have to continue to go back to his word in community by the power of the Holy Spirit and let him push out the boundaries of how we know him through his word, okay? And, and you know, the fact is, this shows us that David walked with God. As we know, as we know, yes, he fell big time, but he walked with God. And he is saying, among other things here, that there's a difference between the man who seeks, seeks God and seeks to know God and to please him and the man who doesn't. Let's just be honest. And David is honest about that here. This is nothing new to David. It's not like only he conveys this kind of thing. It's, all, it's strewn throughout scripture. 
Um, those who follow Yahweh and esteem his word by obeying it are those who can expect his blessing. Um, those who don't can't, one commentator says. So Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and tons of the Psalms and all throughout the Hebrew Bible. Um, so he goes on to say, why should those who reject Yahweh's lordship and despise his law and therefore despise him expect rescue? Such folks have no ongoing commitment to Yahweh, only a temporary need for him. They want no covenant relationship, relations with Yahweh. That's God's covenant name, sorry. They only crave his prostituting himself for their immediate crisis. Those are tough words. They do not seek God, but a bomb shelter. True, okay? Um, also, this righteousness David speaks of, it's not, it's not, it's relative. It's, it's not, um, he's not comparing his righteousness to that of God's. He's not saying I'm perfect, okay? If you dig into the language. Um, he's comparing himself to evil men who hate God. And, um, and that's the other thing that this, this commentator that I just mentioned, Dale Ralph Davis, mentions is that they want, the evil men want no covenant relationship with God. And that's what David knows he has. Really through no good of his own. We see that in other places. Um, the obedience, the obedience uh, that we are to walk in flows out of the covenant relationship God has initiated and completed with us. And that's the ground in the grammar of David's obedience. Our obedience rests on his covenant, and, and David's word speaks to that. And lastly, um, if you look at the last verse, 51, that's really, it's all about covenant. David says, he's finishing this part of the song, and he says, great salvation he brings. Notice, he didn't say, I contribute at all. God's the one who brings salvation. We don't. And shows steadfast love. That's the word chesed in the Hebrew, and that's covenant. That's a covenant word. It's a covenant word that says, God says, I will, I will make a bond between us that will never be broken. Even if you seek to break it, I will be true. And I will be, in fact, broken for you, the lawbreaker, so that the covenant will be kept. And we see that in Christ, which I'll finish with, of course. But um, he shows steadfast love or chesed or covenant love, what, to David and his offspring or seed forever. There's a lot here. There's covenant here. There's, there's the loyalty and the faithfulness of God at the root of this obedience that David said, I've, I've walked in, I've walked in this righteousness. I love God, I seek God. Um, this is an allusion to a lot of stuff, but it's definitely an allusion to 2 Samuel 7, the covenant chapter, which we preached on a couple weeks ago, where God, again, comes to David and says, through no good of your own, I will bless you, because I have chosen you. And even though, um, even though your sons through whom I will pass on the, the, this reign that will never end, will sin. I will discipline them, but I will never depart from them because of this promise I'm making to you because I'm good. I, I hold to my word because I am good and my word is good no matter what. Um, so that's what David, um, that's what God says to David in Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. That's what he's referring to here in part, at least. Um, he also does the same thing at the very end of that passage we read, 2 Samuel 23, verse five. He also refers back to that covenant. Um, so he's really saying, look, this praise, it's because of God and who he is. And yes, I walked, I've walked in obedience and righteousness as well. Um, okay. And his repentance is part of that. Like Justin was saying in leading worship, repentance is part of what we do in relationship to God as sinners that we know that we are made righteous through his righteousness. Okay. Um, 
So his covenant, his faithfulness gives place for our imperfect but real obedience, love, and relational fealty, faithfulness, okay? David says in verse 20b, he says, he delighted in me. He's talking not about a punctilious law observance. He's talking about a relationship with a father. He sees God as my God, my savior, my redeemer, my rock, my fortress. And he understands that God loves him and, his, and, and wants him and wants to be loved, and David is a lover of God. Though he sin egregiously, he is a lover of God. But it's God's love ultimately that conquers David and characterizes his life. Um, so what is the obedience that God requires? It's that which comes from faith, and it is faith. Paul ending the book of Romans, see we read this book in light of the new covenant, right? That's how we truly understand what the old covenant's about, is that Jesus. So it's proper to bring in Romans here. Paul, the apostle, ends the book of Romans, his magnum opus, by saying this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, even David's time, was kept secret, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God. Listen to this phrase. To bring about the obedience of faith. What does God require? What, what is the obedience that he wants from us? a life believing in that he is as good as his word. And what is his word? Jesus, the covenant keeper who was broken though he kept the covenant because he paid for our part of the covenant breaking. This is God's word to us. This is the obedience that God requires for us to know him and to please him is to believe on Jesus. And that's not the aid is. A, B, C, that's the A to Z of our lives. That's where we abide. It's to rest in that finished work of Christ, to rest in it. Um, and, and lastly, let me say this simply and straightforwardly. David doesn't fulfill these words, like I hinted at earlier. He doesn't. He begins to, he touches on their fulfillment, but this is a great way to read scripture, a great hermeneutic, a rule of reading the Bible is Christ fulfills all these words perfectly and they perfectly point to him. Go to Luke 24, the last chapter in Luke, if you want a sort of more of a, a lesson on what that looks like. Jesus talking about that very thing with his disciples. All of the Old Testament is to prepare us. It's a preparatorio evangelica. It prepares us for the gospel. It prepares us for our need for Jesus and his completion of God's perfect word. Jesus, his hands were totally clean. He was totally righteous. David could say this, we have to hedge it a bit. Jesus could truly say, you reward me according to my own righteousness um, and mean it because he was perfect. He was perfect. Um, Derek Kidner, David could quite properly use this language within a limited frame of reference, but the Messiah could use it absolutely. And those clean hands he chose through the wickedness and evil of man to have nailed, to have nailed to a Roman cross, to suffer all the stuff that we couldn't even, we can't even see when it's described with words. If we, if we think we can see with our mind's eye, splayed out as a sin sacrifice for all who would believe in him. We could, what we couldn't see was the worst part. Someone has described it reverently as all the physical suffering of the cross and the hours and perhaps days of asphyxiation as you're pulling yourself up on those spikes and as his back is just mincemeat, just shredded from the whipping and the beating. All that's a flea bite compared to the invisible suffering 
that was poured out on him, the sin sacrifice, all the sins of all those who had trusted in him poured out on him such that 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. So that because God is just, if you are in Christ, you can know that all of your sins, past, present, future, have been paid for on the cross. It is finished to telestai. One of the last things he said, it's done. Done. This is the ground of David's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And this is the great exchange. That's the reason that we are. It's the reason that we come. It's the reason that we gather as a family and seek to fold our neighbors in and to proclaim to them in a million, playing out in a 10,000 different ways, to use a phrase from Gerard Manley Hopkins, please come. Please, please come and know this precious God and Savior whose name is Jesus. There is a way. It's through Jesus. Come. I want to get, I want to eat with you. Come into my house. Just come to Jesus at work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, wherever God has placed us. This is our, this is our cry. And so I need to finish. Yes, I need to finish. Let me just, in finishing, sort of by way of sort of, an, think of point four, the king and new creation, rather than getting nervous, think of it as an epilogue. Let me just say a word and then we'll close, okay? Think of it as an epilogue. The king, we just looked at the king, the king's salvation. Let's finish with the king and the new creation because David finishes with that. These are his dying words. These are the words that hang more than any other, perhaps as a banner over his life. And all this song has, has sort of poured into the, the, the narrow point of the funnel of this. What is he doing? He's describing the reign of the king. What is it gonna look like? What has it started to look like as I have reigned? It started to look like as God has blessed me, that blessing goes out to others. Most of our rulers and the, those that we've placed over us in this republic that we live in even, don't act that way. They just grab the gusto for themselves. That's the human fallen broken instinct. But God's ruler, God's king, the one he sits on his throne, David, yes, but ultimately the one that's gonna come from David and it's actually going to be the greater David. Jesus, when he reigns, not only does, when he is blessed, does he pour out that blessing to others, but Jesus, he who, if anyone deserved to be blessed, he did, rather took our curse upon himself and poured out as a shield to us, took the blow and poured out the blessing to us. And David just uses these very organic, bucolic, earthy, terms to say, it's going to make a difference in everyday life. The grass is going to be greener. The sun is going to, the light of the sun is going to touch everything. Things are going to grow. There's going to be food on the table. When the king comes, normal, good, everyday life is going to be restored. Pain's going to be gone. Suffering's going to be gone. Okay. All boats will rise. To use again, a phrase from Tolkien spoken by Gandalf, I think he says, it's going to be like the sun rising on a far green field. I think he uses the phrase, a swift sunrise over a far green field. How beautiful. And that's really what David says here in verse four and elsewhere. Everything sad, Sam Gamgee, everything sad is gonna come untrue. That's what David's saying. That's what the reign of the king is gonna look like. As Augustine, the church father said, all, uh, excuse me, T.S. Eliot said, all manner of things will be well. Augustine said, nothing that is good, in the end, when Christ returns and establishes his, he's reigning now, but when he completes that reign and comes back and brings heaven down to stay, and we're with him bodily, nothing that is good will not remain. Is there something that you're pining after that you're afraid to lose now? 
It's okay. You will have it in spades forever, perfectly. Let it just be an arrow that points you toward the king and his coming and the reign that will never end. Let it be an arrow. Don't try to grab onto it. That's idolatry. Go read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. He says it a lot better than I do. But when the reign of the king comes, nothing that is good will not remain. But let me say this and finish with this, friends. The converse is terrifyingly but necessarily true. Nothing that is not good will remain. This is a, nothing that is not good will remain. This is a battle hymn. David was ferociously killing God's enemies. The greater than David came and absorbed that curse into himself and was crucified in our place. And there is a time between now and then where Jesus, where God is saying, in Christ, come, come, come. All enemies of God, come be made friends of God because Christ, my own son, I allowed to be made an enemy for your sake. So come now. But that time's gonna end and it's gonna end when he comes again and he will crush all opposed to him and do away with evil and those that hate him. It must be that way. How could a perfect creation be anything but that? Now is the time to flee to Christ, to call him my God and my refuge. And we can't be guaranteed tomorrow. And that's what David is saying in this battle hymn of praise to God. Henry V at Agincourt, prostrate on the, on the ground with his troops, not to us, Lord, non nobis domine, not to us, but to your name, to your name because of what you have done through your precious son, Jesus Christ. To your name alone be glory. Could that be our battle cry? Strategies, this, that, and the other. We're so fond of them as Americans. Rather, you will do it. It's a guarantee. You are working it out. Could we just be a part of that, Lord? Could the gospel be in our hearts and in our lips in everything that we do at work, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, around our tables? with our enemies, with our friends. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for sending your own son. He was far worse than getting a beating by a stick or having some kid do the sleeper hold on him. He um, received everlasting torment in a contracted to a span that we deserved. And not only did you sit and turn your, and turn your face, you, you who love the son and love him with a perfect love, but you poured out your wrath upon him for our sakes. Would you cause that truth to change us more and more and more and more into his image that he might get all praise, that people might be saved, might see your beauty and come. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.